Today on the John Ankerberg Show, scientists discovered the universe had a beginning. And they also discovered the fundamental parameters of the universe have been finely tuned so that life can exist. These discoveries were shocking to scientific materialists who did not believe in God. But today, there is even more shocking scientific evidence that comes from biology. Probably every student has seen Darwin's Tree of Life many times. Darwin's theory was, you start with simple molecules at the base of the tree, and they somehow merge and grow into higher life forms. But nobody at school ever told us that if you went right to where the roots are at, there is no way for this tree to grow. When scientists did examine the roots of the tree, they realized the origin of life was a big mystery. But today, with more advanced equipment, scientists now see what's inside our cells, and it isn't simple at all. Inside each cell, we find molecular machines, nanomachines, little tiny miniature machines that perform crucial functions inside cells to help keep us alive. Then, in the 1950s, the DNA molecule was discovered and it was found to encode three billion instructions for building the proteins in our cells, amino acid by amino acid, so that they would be put together in the right order to keep us alive. Scientists were amazed at this complex information. They asked, where did it come from? My guest today is Dr. Stephen Meyer, who received his PhD in the philosophy of science from Cambridge University in England and has written two best-selling, award-winning books, Signature in the Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design, and his latest book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. We invite you to join us for this special edition of The John Ankerberg Show. Welcome to our program. I'm John Ankerberg, and my guest is philosopher of science, Dr. Stephen Meyer, who received his PhD from Cambridge University in England. Dr. Meyer has authored three important books about the origin of life in the universe, including Signature in the Cell, Darwin's Doubt, and his latest book, which is going to be a national bestseller. It's already a USA Today national bestseller. It's called The Return of the God Hypothesis. Stephen, in our previous programs, we looked at the Judeo-Christian roots of modern science and how the God hypothesis fell out of favor in the 19th century with the rise of scientific materialism. Then you told us about two scientific discoveries in the 20th century that seemed to point to the existence of a transcendent mind or a super intellect behind the universe, what you call the God hypothesis, which you describe in your book just as clear as I've ever seen. Today you're going to tell us about a third scientific discovery that seems to suggest the activity of a designing intelligence, and that's the discovery of what's in everybody's body that's watching. That's the discovery of the digital information encoded in DNA. Now, before we talk about this discovery, can you first remind us of why leading scientific atheists think that scientific discoveries undermine belief in God. You have debated most of them. I've heard a lot of the debates, so you know what they are talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
The New Atheists are a, a group of scientists who've been arguing since about 2006, 2007, that science properly understood undermines belief in God. And for them, a key issue is actually the issue of design. One of those key scientific atheists, Richard Dawkins, has said that the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if at bottom there's no p purpose, no design, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And he goes on when he's talking about biology to say that biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. But for him, the key word is appearance. And the reason that the, uh, these new atheists or scientific atheists are so confident in their position is they believe that the Darwinian explanation for the appearance of design is right. Because according to Darwin, living things look as though they were designed for a purpose. They have the appearance of design, but they weren't actually designed because there's an unguided, undirected process that produces that appearance. And that process is his idea of natural selection acting on random variations. And modern biologists would now talk about natural selection acting on ra random mutations. And so, because there's this unguided process that can mimic the powers of a designing intelligence, we don't need to really think about an actual design. We don't have evidence of actual design, and therefore, there's no evidence of design, there's no designer, there's no designer, then belief in God becomes, as Dawkins puts it elsewhere, delusional. We might believe in it to give ourselves comfort, but we have no objective or public evidence of design, only the illusion of design in living things. Yeah, but you've argued the major discoveries about the origin and fine-tuning of the universe are not at all what we would expect given the Dawkins materialistic worldview that we just saw. It doesn't show us just blind, pitiless, materialistic processes. But what about biology? Do living things have just the properties we should expect if nothing but blind, pitiless processes were at work? Well, we saw in the previous episodes that we've done together yes. that the discovery that the universe had a beginning, that the universe has been finely tuned from the beginning, these were very shocking to scientific materialists or scientific atheists. Oh, yeah. But biology has also presented a whole host of new discoveries about essentially the complexity of the cell that were completely unexpected in Darwin's time, and they're causing even the new atheists to register some shock, as we'll see as we talk more. But, um, let me take us back to the 19th century. There's a famous quote from one of Darwin's followers, the German evolutionary biologist Ernst Haeckel. And this is in the 1870s. He said, the cell is a simple homogenous globule of plasm. Yeah. So in the 19th century, uh, the, the concept of, of the fundamental, the smallest unit of life was that it was a simple, essentially, blob of jello. Now, this is important because Darwin, many people don't realize this, but Darwin never attempted to explain the origin of the first life. What he tried to do instead was explain how we got new living forms from one or a very few simple forms at the very we've beginning. We've all seen this Darwin's Tree of Life in school. Probably every student, every Christian student, every one that's gone to university, we've seen it twice, all right? Yeah, so Darwin's picture was you start with a simple cell at the, be at the base of the tree. But that's the bottom, and the fact is that nobody at school ever told us that if you went right to the roots where the roots are supposed to be at, there is no way we for got, this we tree got a big to grow. Mystery. We got a big mystery yeah. there. You know, so even if you accept Darwin's theory is completely adequate, and we'll talk in a subsequent episode about some reasons to doubt that, uh, there's now... The, the whole question of the origin of life is a profound mystery. It was in Darwin's time, but in Darwin's time, people didn't worry about it because they thought the cell was so simple. They thought that a few simple chemical reactions 
would produce this substance they called protoplasm. And then since that was the essence of life, a little enclosure around the, the protoplasm and voila, we've got life. So they didn't worry too much about it. But as we've discovered more about what's actually inside cells, about the complexity of the simplest living unit of life, we've discovered that the simple cell isn't simple at all. And so I, I wanted to just show your audience a few of the kinds of things that yeah. contemporary biologists are discovering. Uh, the, the first class of evidence concerns what are called molecular machines, nanomachines, little tiny miniature machines that perform crucial functions either inside cells or in this case yeah, in the cell membrane. Yeah, let me stop you right here. First of all, in everybody's body there are trillions of cells. And in every cell you can find little machines like this. Now you've never seen them, but the fact is with the new technology that we've got today, you guys have seen these, and this is just an illustration. We're going to show them more about what's in their body in these cells. Yeah, what, what scientists are finding. Or but what blows like, your mind about this? Well, this, this is a particular uh, miniature machine called a bacterial flagellar motor. It's been made famous by my colleague, Michael Behe, who is a biochemist at Lehigh University in his book, Darwin's Black Box. But lots of biochemists know about these uh, machines. This, what, what does it do? Well, it, it has a rotor, a stator, a U-joint, a drive shaft, and a whip-like tail that functions like a propeller. And it sits in the, uh, the cell membrane there, or the, the membrane of, the, of a one-celled bacterium. And it spins at, in some species, up to 100,000 RPM, can reverse direction on a quarter of a turn. And it's hardwired into a, what's called a signal transduction circuit that allows the little one-celled organism to detect uh, where its food supply is, and it can detect changes in the sugar gradient in the aqueous solution in which it lives, and it motors around to find the best, you know, the best feeding grounds. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a true rotary engine. Um, and there are many other molecular machines that have been discovered. We have little walking robotic uh, motor proteins that tow vesicles of material uh, to where they're needed for constructing things inside cells. It's called a kinesin walking motor protein. There are uh, there are turbines, uh, a, a, a molecular machine called an ATP synthase uh, that is a true turbine. There are little sliding clamps and it, that are involved in DNA replication. So there are multiple miniature machines at work in either one-celled organisms or in the cells in our bodies as well. And this has been a major discovery of modern microbiology uh, and biochemistry in the last uh, half century. And that, for one thing, shows that the cell is not simple at all. But Stephen, you argue that there are even more fascinating discoveries of what it takes to build machines like this inside the cells. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look at that flagellar motor again, the little rotary engine we were talking about. And look at the different parts. If you see one that says universal joint on the screen, now I'm going to switch the slide here. And that universal joint is actually a protein. In fact, all the different parts of the flagellar motor and all the other molecular machines we've been talking about are made of proteins. And proteins, in turn, are made of smaller subunits called amino acids. And I have a little illustration of that that uh, uh, shows that the, the amino acids can be represented as different, different types of beads that link together. And if they linked together, there are 20 different types of these amino acids. That's right. And they kind of function like alphabetic letters, and if you get the letters in the right sequence, then this big chain will fold in a very specific shape. In one case, it may make a U-joint, and in another case, it may make and that's very the drive important. shaft. If they don't, right. it won't function the way it's exactly. supposed to. Exactly. It's, so it's sequence-specific. Right. The, the, the arrangement of the parts is got to be very precise for the function of the whole. Now, 
proteins not only build parts for molecular machines, they also build, uh, for example, enzymes, which are crucial to the function of our, our cells. And th this is an enzyme that breaks apart a two-part sugar molecule. But you can see that the enzyme at the bottom has a hand-and-glove fit with that barbell-shaped sugar. And because of that tight fit, it can perform a catalytic reaction much faster than would otherwise occur. And so the, the principle of functionality for proteins is the three-dimensional specificity of fit. It's a hand-and-glove. Every protein has a very specific three-dimensional shape that allows it to do its specific job. And it only gets that three-dimensional shape if the amino acids are arranged properly in this long one-dimensional array so that they fold into the right shape. And some of those are 190 oh, you have, long to well, 300, well, I think. A modest length, pro an average length protein is about 300 amino acids long. You have some that are much longer than that. With all kinds of different information that have to be arranged exactly right or it doesn't work. Exactly. The principle is of specificity. Specificity of arrangement, specificity of shape. Now the big question in biology is, yeah. How does that happen? What tells the amino acids how to arrange themselves so that they line up properly, fold into the right shape, and so they can do a job? And the, the great discovery of the second half of the 20th century biology is that there's another molecule inside the cell known as DNA that literally contains instructions in a digital form for directing the construction of those, those protein molecules, for arranging the amino acids subunit by subunit to make the long chain that will fold properly. And the, the story of this discovery starts with Watson and Crick in 1953, when they elucidate the structure of the DNA molecule, which by this time many scientists suspected had something to do with the transmission of hereditary information. And what Crick discovered later in 1958, or what he proposed, was that the subunits of the DNA molecule that run down the interior of the spine there are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written language or like digital characters, like the zeros and ones in a section of software code. This was known as the sequence hypothesis and it was later confirmed and what it essentially says is that the DNA molecule performs a function not by virtue of its physical properties but instead in virtue of the specific arrangement of those what they're called nucleotide bases, the subunits of the DNA on the inside of the molecule, it performs a function for directing protein synthesis in virtue of the precise arrangement yeah, of those Yeah, let characters. me hold it right there because the DNA that's in every one of our cells in our body, it's a billion characters long. It's exactly the same thing with the proteins. Specificity is right. key. It's not just that you can arrange them any old way. They've got to be arranged in a very precise way so that the, the amino acids get arranged properly and in turn the protein folds and does a job. So one way to understand what's going on inside this DNA and protein system is by analogy to a technology we use today in manufacturing called CAD-CAM, Computer Assisted Design and Engineering. So you might, say if you were at the Boeing plant in Seattle where I live, right. you have an engineer sitting at a console, writes some code, the code goes down a wire, the wire's translated into a machine language that then directs the uh, manufacturing arm to say put rivets on the airplane in just the right place yeah. in accord with the in the, the huge factory basically you got all these big machines that are being programmed from uh, up, upstairs and it's coming down the wire and the fact is then it does the work downstairs in building these airplanes right and so you've got digital information directing the construction of a mechanical system 
And that's exactly what's going on inside the cell today, inside every single cell of every, every organism on Earth, including our own. And so we've got a little animation that shows exactly how that works, and we can roll tape. Let's roll the tape. With computer animation, we can enter the cell to view this remarkable system at work. After entering the heart of the cell, we see the tightly wound strands of DNA, storehouses for the instructions necessary to build every protein in an organism. In a process known as transcription, a molecular machine first unwinds a section of the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions needed to assemble a specific protein molecule. Another machine then copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. When transcription is complete, the slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex, the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. The messenger RNA strand is directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. After attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell and then linked into chains often hundreds of units long. Their sequential arrangement determines the type of protein manufactured. When the chain is finished, it is moved from the ribosome to a barrel-shaped machine that helps fold it into the precise shape critical to its function. After the chain is folded into a protein, it is then released and shepherded by another molecular machine to the exact location where it is needed. It looks like a lot of information, Stephen, but in your book you talk about this as the DNA enigma. Where did this information come from? Talk about it. Right. Well, the, the DNA enigma is not where does the information for building proteins reside. We now know that. It, it's on the DNA molecule. Uh, along the spine of the DNA molecule. It's not what the information does. We've just seen an animation of how the digital information in the DNA directs the construction of those crucial protein molecules. The, the big mystery uh, associated with this discovery is the mystery of the origin of the information. Where did that information come from in, in the first place? And that mystery is closely associated with a, another mystery, which is the origin of the first life. Because if you want to build 
a cell, you've got to have proteins. But to build proteins, you've got to have the information in the DNA molecule. And that question has actually created an impasse in a, a field of study known as origin of life research. The scientists trying to explain how the first cell arose from supposedly simpler chemicals in a prebiotic soup have come up against this really difficult question, which is how do you get from chemistry to code? How do you get a, a molecule chock full of digital information from blind, undirected material processes? I think that that mystery is the flip side of a positive case for intelligent design. Because what we know from experience is that information always comes from an intelligent source. Bill Gates has said that DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. And we know from experience that software comes from programmers. In fact, again, whenever we see information and trace it back to its ultimate source, whether we're talking about a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or information embedded in a radio signal, we always come to a mind, not a material process. And so the discovery of information at the foundation of life is pointing towards a designing intelligence, toward a master programmer. And this discovery has actually also shocked some of the new atheists who have confidently proclaimed that the universe has just the properties we should expect if at bottom there's no purpose or design. Uh, Richard Dawkins, for example, just this last summer tweeted about an animation very similar to this one. And he said, uh, animations like this knock me sideways with wonder at the miniaturized intricacy of the data processing machinery in the living cell. So far from being an expected discovery of, of scientific materialism or atheism, the information-bearing properties of DNA and the whole digital information processing system inside the cell is shocking to scientific materialists. It's not what they would have expected, and instead it points decisively to a designing intelligence in the history of life. Fascinating information, Stephen. Folks, thanks for joining us today. I hope that you're enjoying this as much as I am. Next time, we're gonna test the claim that Dr. Meyer is making by examining some of the alternative naturalistic explanations that have been proposed to explain what you just saw, the origin of information in living things. Could chance or some natural law or process produce the information needed for life? I want you to hear what Dr. Meyer has to say and his response to all of the challenges, all right? So I hope you'll join us then.